right, so this is agreement number one. Bear with me. I'm going to cruise through a lot of material tonight. Got some slides for you to help you write down the scripture references as they come. But as we're looking at purple faith, we're, we're, we're trying to reorient ourselves around the higher callings of scripture or specifically the gospel or the gospel story. And if we focus our attention on the issues that divide us and get all absorbed in those, we'll be constantly and continually divided and fighting with one another if we can set our sights on something higher above the day-to-day life and the day-to-day arguments that we're facing right now, then we can, we can hopefully draw ourselves out of some of the fighting that's going on. And this is the first agreement of the series. And this is the agreement of the image of God. As a human being made in the image of God, I will treat others, other humans with dignity and respect. As a human being made in the image of God, I will treat other humans with dignity and respect. Has this happened to you? Do you know that moment when you, when you suddenly realize the person you're talking to is a somebody? Have you had that experience? Like you're talking with someone and then you make some kind of connection either in the dialogue or they say something and you realize that the person you're talking to was maybe the boss's daughter, the principal's son, or the governor's wife. Have you ever had that experience? You don't really know this person, but then you realize they're connected to somebody important. Or maybe you've done the opposite thing. You suddenly realize that the person you're talking to is connected to that person. And that person is the person you never want to think about or the person you never want to talk to again in your life. They're the person who hurt you, the daughter of the boss who fired you, or the wife of the politician you voted against. Right? You know, like all of a sudden you're talking to somebody and you realize who they are. Or it's like this, like the scene in Aladdin where Aladdin and Jasmine are running from the authorities, right? And they're on the top of the roof and Aladdin says to Jasmine, do you trust me? And they run and jump off of the roof and fall, you know, through several stories and end up down at the bottom where they get caught and these big, these big soldiers are, you know, roughing up Aladdin. They're kind of throwing him around and, and being, you know, being, being rude to him, calling him names, calling him street rat. And then, and then Jasmine tries to jump in. I'll show you the clip, but we're not allowed to stream the clip on Facebook, so I have to explain it for you. Jasmine tries to jump in and save Aladdin, but then one of the soldiers shoves her back to the ground and, and calls her a street mouse being disrespectful to her, and then all of a sudden, she reveals her identity, right? She takes off what's been covering up her princess headdress, and she says that she, you know, she demands them to stop by the order of the princess of whatever the land is called. What's the land called? What? Agrabah. Agrabah. And she tries then to use her identity as the princess to save Aladdin, and then you know how the story goes from that point in time. Maybe you've done, that, done the same thing. I have to confess, back when I was a worship pastor, 
Um, I tended to treat the other pastor's kids differently because they were pastor's kids. Probably not the way that you think, though, because a lot of pastor's kids get, get shown favoritism. They get treated too well. And so I would see these pastor's kids, and I would think, well, I'm not going to show them favoritism because James says we're not supposed to show favoritism. So I would, I would just try hard to make sure when they were in my ministry that they got treated normally like every other kid. Or maybe you have connections to a different geographical region like I do back into the Midwest and Ohio, and, and you meet someone from the Midwest, like I meet someone from Ohio. I can't remember where it was, it wasn't that long ago, but I met someone at a funeral, and they were from Ohio and, and were familiar with my town, and we talked about my town. All of a sudden, I felt this strong connection to them because they were from where I was from. Now, I don't know them. They could be evil people. They could be villains. They could be, you know, really hard to get along with. But for some reason, because I had some connection to something outside of where we were, I, I felt a connection with them. Why do we treat people differently when we know where they came from? Why do we treat people differently when we know where they came from? Where if all of a sudden we were standing here talking to someone and we discovered that it was the president's son or the king's son, why would we probably start talking to them differently? Well, our agreement tonight, as a human being made in God's image, I will treat people with dignity and respect. I want to break that down and really dig into this idea as quickly as we can. This word, Imago Dei, there's a church over in Portland named Imago Dei, it's the Latin for image of God, and pastors need to throw out words in other languages from time to time to make ourselves sound smart, so we like to say things like imago Dei, even though we could just say image of God. It comes from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Then God said, this is at the end of creation, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And then there's a refrain, there's a, a repetition, because it was such a, a, an amazing thing that had happened. There's, there's a poetic response to it. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So God made us, made human beings in his image and his likeness, and he did this for a purpose, to rule over creation, the creation that he had just created. If you want a good video on the idea of being made in the image of God, I encourage you to go check out the Bible Project's video on image of God. They do a great job explaining it, as they do with all their videos. But God made humans to be His representatives on earth. He wanted us to be His, his likeness, His beings that would represent Him here on earth and in His new paradise that He had created. And He placed Adam and Eve right there in the middle of this paradise as His image bearers. And he wanted them, he blessed them and said he wanted them to be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. 
So part of their job was to create more representatives made in the image of God to help rule over creation. Genesis 2 adds a little more nuance to this understanding. It says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. God formed Adam from the dirt, which is what we're going to remember this coming Wednesday at our Ash Wednesday service. The word human that we talk about, that we use to describe ourselves, actually comes from the word, the Latin word hummus or humus, which literally means ground, dirt. So that garlic-saturated chickpea stuff that all of you like to dip your bagel chips into is dirt. You like eating dirt. I do not like hummus. I just, I just have never, never gotten not to the place where I enjoy the taste. But God took the dirt, He took hummus, and He formed it, and then He breathed the breath of life into it. And each one of these components is critical. He took dirt, He formed it, God formed the human, and then He breathed the breath of life into it. Without each of these components, we wouldn't exist as humans. Without the substance that we were created from and then being formed and shaped, as we're going to talk about in just a second, in the mother's womb, and then receiving the breath of life, without each of those components, we would be nothing. But God did all of these three different things. So every human being from Adam all the way until now has these same inherent qualities. We were formed by God just like Adam and Eve were formed. Psalm 139 says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God has created every human being in His image. He formed them intentionally, and He has a plan for all of our lives. But when that formation was complete, we were born, just like we're celebrating tonight with the birth of, of Ben. We get to see how God formed Ben in the womb and then created him and breathed His life into him. And that moment that you guys just experienced, I remember very clearly with all four of our children, you the baby is born, and then that moment of waiting. Once the, once the baby is born, you're waiting, and every, every parent is waiting for one sound. What's, you're waiting for that cry, right? You should, should pinch the baby right now and get just a little scream. No, I'm just kidding. Would have been a great illustration, though, if he cried right at that moment. But we're waiting for that cry. We let out, let out that very first cry. And maybe we're so anxious for that moment because it represents that we have this breath of life that God has given to us. And that's how it's happened all along. From, from Eve onward, all of us who have been born since have cried that first cry with the breath of God. We're all on equal footing as human beings, all, all representatives of the image of God. Psalm 8, King David writes, he says, You have made them, that's mankind, 
made humans a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. For a lot of my life, even after having gone through Multnomah and, and theology, Bible and theology training and all of that stuff, I didn't realize that, that as human beings we are currently crowned with glory and honor because we represent God, we have the image and likeness of God. We are, on, in terms of the rest of creation, crowned with glory and honor because we have God's image and likeness. And it's something that is right now. It's not something we're waiting to have happen. There will be moments that, that come when there's a different honor that's put on us as, as God's children. But, but we have that now. Every human being has that now because we bear God's image. In Mark chapter 12, there's an incredible exchange between Jesus and some Pharisees and, and Herodians. The Pharisees and Herodians were trying to catch Jesus in his words so that they could use them against him. Just like we see today when somebody becomes incredibly popular, people start looking for mistakes that they make so they can use them against them, and they were trying to trap Jesus by asking him difficult questions so he might put his foot in his mouth. And they were asking him some things that had been controversial in their own world, in their own teaching for hundreds if not thousands of years. So one of these traps they set to him was here in Mark chapter 12. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others. You can hear their assumptions, right, and what they say. You, you can hear the pretext of their questions. We know that you're not swayed by others. You're, you're a smart man. You, you teach the truth. You teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Like, come on, Jesus, make, make a definitive statement so that we can either get Rome to take you down or we can take you down ourselves. The story goes on. Jesus knew their hypocrisy and asked, why are you trying to trap me? Now, we know from Luke chapter 5 that Jesus was actually able to perceive people's thoughts so he could hear people's thoughts or somehow know what people were thinking while, while he was on earth which is one of the reasons he wouldn't entrust himself to men because he knew what was in their hearts. Now, I can't re read people's minds. I, I haven't gotten good at that yet. I hope to get there someday, but I'm just not there right now. I'll let you know when I get there. Every once in a while, when we used to do prayer circles on Sunday morning before the service, you know, I, I, I would wonder... Is there anyone here that, you know, that can hear my thoughts? And so when there was a quiet time in the middle of the prayer circle and no one was saying anything, in my mind I would scream. I would just, ah! and see if anyone jumped. I know. I did. I was just, just being honest, just revealing. But Jesus could somehow perceive people's thoughts. Maybe there are some who have that gift uh, because of the Spirit today. But they were trying to trap Jesus. They were working an angle when they asked him this question. They were not trying to have an honest discussion about paying taxes to Caesar. They were setting a trap, right? That's what they were doing. They were setting a trap. 
But pay attention to what Jesus says and does next. He says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this on the coin? These coins have an image on them. It's just a star. But whose image is on the coin? And whose inscription? On the back it says winner. So it's got an inscription on it. It also says something I can't read. Made in China and a bunch of numbers. So whose inscription is on the coin? Caesar's, they replied. Here it is. Here here comes Jesus' mic drop. He says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. The coin has Caesar's image on it, so Jesus says, give it back to Caesar. And then he says, give back to God what is God's. The verse finishes with the commentary, they were amazed at him. See, they had set a trap for Jesus, but Jesus, being well beyond their, their wisdom and their knowledge, avoided the trap completely and even includes some really serious theology in the process. If you, don't, if you don't know to look for it, you might miss it, so we need to go back and see really quickly what he's doing here because Jesus makes an implication with his argument. He implies a truth. He asks the question, what has Caesar's image on it? And we would say the coin. The coin has the image of Caesar on it. And then what are we supposed to do with the coin? We're supposed to give it back to Caesar. Now, they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to pay taxes. They were trying to find a way to get out of paying taxes to Caesar. But then he says, give back to God what is God's? And we're supposed to ask the same question that he had just asked in the rest of the text. Because he says, who has, who has, what, whose image is on the coin? And then we're supposed to do the same thing, give back to God what is God's. Well, what has God's image on it? We do. So he's saying, who cares about the coin? Who cares about paying taxes? Give back to God what is God's, which is you, us. But just like we don't like paying taxes because we tend to think of the money that we have in our bank accounts as our money, not the money that God has entrusted to us, we also don't want to give our lives back to God because we think of it as our life. That's the image of God. That's a brief theology. It may not feel really brief, but that's a brief theology of the image of God. But how does that apply to purple faith? How, how does that matter in the context that we're talking about right now? Well, people are livid right now. I don't know if you've noticed that, but it seems like no matter what happens in the world, there's always people who are just mad about it. You know, we've got this horrible catastrophe going on in Ukraine at this moment, and people are protesting all around the world. I think probably good protest, you know, saying we shouldn't be doing this or we should be making a better stand against Putin. It's a hard conversation to get into right now. But we, we have all of these issues that are going on in the world, and we're livid about them. We have issues related to the pandemic. We have issues related to race relations. And there's hate coming from both sides and people claiming to be Christians on both sides, throwing hate back and forth between the two sides. 
Now, our faith, the very foundation of our faith, Christianity, is supposed to be built on the foundation that we're all made in God's image. And because we're all made in the image of God, then we treat one another with dignity and respect that you would treat someone who's made in the image of God, just like we might treat, you know, a, a, a prince or the son or daughter of someone in authority. But here's my point. All people, whether in our presence or absence, whether they are friend or foe, whether they are a leader or a follower, regardless of any kind of criteria we could place on them, no matter how deeply their actions offend our personal value system, all people on this planet are made in God's image, which means that all people on the planet deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. That means that current President Biden and former President Trump both deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. Not because of their office or party affiliation, not because they are right or because they are wrong or somewhere in between, but because they are human beings made in the image of God. That doesn't mean that they're not accountable for the decisions that they make and their actions. Leaders are held to a higher standard. There's going to be, you know, there's responsibility they have for everything they've said and done, just like we do. But their leadership as the President of the United States and their thoughts lining up with our values is not a prerequisite for treating someone with dignity and respect. At least not biblically speaking. Now, the way our world operates, that might be true, but for us as believers, it doesn't matter what someone believes. We treat them as though we're treating them as the prince or princess of the king. In the book, The Truth About Us, Brant Hansen quotes a statistic that 93% of Americans believe that they are morally superior to the others around them. And I don't know if you're good at math, but like 93%, that's almost everybody, and it's not like 50% that thinks that they're better than the other side. We all basically think that we're better than everyone else. In their book, Denying to the Grave, Why We Ignore the Facts That Will Save Us, Jack and Sarah Gorman speak about confirmation bias. We've talked about that before, but they cite research, this is interesting, which suggests that we get a hit of dopamine when we take in information that supports what we already believe. In other words, we get a little high when we find information that supports our preconceived notions, regardless of whether or not they're true. So when we hear a piece of information that lines up with what we already believe, we get a little hit of dopamine, which makes us feel better. According to an article on the Harvard Business Review, which has to be right because it's Harvard, it says, when you argue and win, your brain floods with different hormones adrenaline and dopamine, which make you feel good, dominant, and even invincible. They say, 
it's the kind of feeling any of us would want to replicate. So the next time we're in a tense situation, we'll fight again. That's why these chemicals are released, so that we're fighting, you know, to win. But what ends up happening when we're having moral and um, value-based arguments, we're fighting to be right, and then we get addicted to being right and addicted to the fight to be right. So we think of ourselves as morally superior to others. We judge others based on their actions and our assumed our assumptions that their actions are based on bad intentions, while at the same time we expect others to judge us based on our good intentions regardless of the actions. Then we elevate our beliefs and justify our own actions because our intent is to defend what we believe to be true, so we are right. And then we get little dopamine highs off of information that lines up with our beliefs when we get in our echo chambers and everything is saying what we wanted to say. We're basically a bunch of bullies addicted to our own inflated egos and embellished justifications. Some real lighthearted content there. For <laughs> Has anyone heard of the ladder of inference? Anyone heard this, the ladder of inference? Well, I've been a pastor since 2013 here. I've preached hundreds of sermons during that time. Sometimes someone will come up to me after a sermon and say, yeah, God really spoke to me through that sermon. And then we'll talk about what God was saying to them. Sometimes the person will say something that I said. God, God, you know, when you were talking about being in, made in the image of God, that just really resonated with me, and I could see how, how I needed to change my, my way of thinking and my approach to others on that. Just God really laid that on my heart. Other times, people will come up and say things that, that have absolutely nothing to do with anything that I've said as though I have just said a sermon, an entire sermon, about that thing. And oftentimes, those two people will be in the same room who heard the exact same sermon, the same words that we're all hearing right now. Now, some of this, we would say, is the Spirit talking to people. And so the Spirit would, you know, encourage people, and sometimes they give me the credit for what the Spirit has done. Other times, though, what's happening is what we call the ladder of inference. It's a mental model that describes how people can come to different conclusions based on the same information. It's used in the business world to talk about how two people can sit in a meeting, hear the same presentation, and leave with entirely different conclusions. It's very likely happening right now and tonight, where people can leave our sermon tonight, our service tonight, with two very different ideas of what I actually said this evening. Here's how it works. We start at the bottom of the ladder, and we take in information. That's the first step. So we're all taking in information right now as we're listening to this sermon. The next step is we choose the information that we believe to be relevant to our lives, and we throw out everything else. This is normal function of the brain. We can't remember everything that happens in our lives, so our brain has to learn how to filter things out. Then we add meaning to the information that we've heard and taken in based on our own feelings, presumptions, prior knowledge, beliefs, and so forth. 
and we make assumptions based on our beliefs that our understanding of the information we've just heard is accurate. Moving up the ladder, we draw then, we draw conclusions based on those assumptions and based on what's best for ourselves. We then adopt beliefs with the assumption that everyone else in the room has come to the same conclusion as we have. And finally, we take action as though our beliefs were black and white facts. So this is happening in the room. Every time we're in a room and someone's sharing information, it's getting filtered through all of these things. That means that our beliefs about anything are rarely ever just the facts. When we're talking about any of these issues that we're dealing with right now in the world, they're rarely ever just the facts because the facts have been filtered through our own priorities. I don't know if you've ever made a homemade water filter. A lot of kids have done this in school and as a part of science. But you, you can take a lot of different ingredients and you layer them, right? So you get, you get different, different uh, levels, different thicknesses, I guess, of filters. You start with some gravel on the top, and then you might put some sand below the gravel, and then at the very bottom you would probably put some, some cotton balls and some activated charcoal or something to get all the pollutants that were missed by the first two layers. We're doing the same thing with information in our brains. We're filtering it through these different layers of priorities and then feelings and stories and then assumptions and beliefs and then eventually it becomes a fact to us that we're, that we're regurgitating and then trying to live our lives by. So we do this when we're hearing teaching like we are right now, but it's also happening in our minds when we see a news clip, when we're seeing political speeches, and it's how people can listen to the same speech and hear two very different messages. But where it's kind of gotten out of control is that now most of us have embraced this filtered version of the truth as absolute truth. And we act on the beliefs that have been filtered through all of these different things, through these different layers of our personal internal context. And then we see anyone that disagrees with what we have described as the truth as someone who not only disagrees with us and what we think, but they're actually disagreeing with the actual truth, what is actually right and wrong. So they're not just people who think differently than us, they're actually enemies. So this isn't just you know, debating between Diet Pepsi and Diet Coke and which one is the right, or Coke and Pepsi, or Mountain Dew and Mellow Yellow. This is going to the extreme of saying people who drink Diet Pepsi are true believers, and people who drink Diet Coke are in danger of the fires of hell. I don't like either, so that was a safe one for me. Bingo. Good job. Well, come up and get your medals. No, shout it out. We need the interruption, especially when it's really heavy 
serious content. Good job. So we're getting through these levels and then we're embracing truth as though it's absolute truth that isn't actually absolute truth. Very few people on the planet have the capacity to emotionally distance ourselves from our internally filtered variations of the truth in order to be able to draw conclusions based on what the data actually says. Very few of us can do that. A lot of us think we can, but we're not great at it because we're filtering it through everything we already believe in our lives. And then we demonize people who think differently than we do which I think is where we're finding ourselves today. A world full of people judging and condemning one another according to their own internal filtered versions of the truth. But the real truth is that every human being is made in the image of God and deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. So the people that we're talking to whether in real life or online on social media, every single person we're talking to is somebody who was formed by God and had the same breath of life breathed into their lungs that we had when we were born. And those people that think that way, you know, the ones that are everything is wrong with the world are those people. Every single one of those people is made in the image of God. Every single one of them and us are equals in the eyes of God. Bingo. Come up and get it. Good job. For people watching at home online, we've got sermon bingo going on. But what if, I mean, what if we treated people as though God were that person. I'm not saying, don't, don't think I'm saying we should worship people because that's not what I'm saying. But if God were to appear right now, like if Jesus were to show up in this room, how would we treat Jesus in the room? How would we speak to Jesus if Jesus showed up right now? And if Jesus was speaking the truth and we disagreed with Jesus' truth, how would we talk to Jesus? What if we treated people like that? Or what if at the very least we treated one another as though our father and their father were both someone really, really important? Several weeks ago we talked about the idea of pakuach nefesh. Does anyone remember pakuach nefesh? Kazuntite. I worry about repeating myself, but every time I ask if anyone remembers something, no one remembers, so I don't have to worry about repeating myself. I could probably preach the same sermon like five weeks in a row and still discover new information. Pekuach nefesh literally means watching over a soul. It's the principle of preserving human life, which supersedes every religious rule in Judaism. So if someone's life is in danger, a Jew is permitted to break other commandments in order to save that life. The example we gave is if a home were to collapse on the Sabbath and they needed to do work on the Sabbath to save someone from the rubble, they were commanded to break the Sabbath in order to save the life. So that's pekuach nefesh, 
watching over a soul. Life is the most important thing. As long as the saving of the life doesn't require idolatry, forbidden sexual acts, or murder, which seems obvious, and a few other really specific situations, Jews were required to do whatever they could to save someone's life, even eating pork on Yom Kippur if someone is starving and the only meat that is around is pork. It's a fascinating rule. In fact, most, not all of the Big Ten, the, t- the Ten Commandments, can be violated for pekuach nefesh. You can't worship idols and that kind of a thing, but there are, most of the commandments can be violated if you need to save a life. In other words, there are rules like the Ten Commandments that govern our lives, but then there are higher principles that seem to have even more authority than those rules. Pekuach nefesh seems to be an overarching rule that governs the way we even interact with the Ten Commandments. All human life is sacred because all human life was formed by God and received God's breath of life and bears His image and likeness. This is truth. This is what we would call absolute truth. Some may disagree with that statement, and that's okay. We could talk about that if you do. But this might be the most foundational truth of all humanity. Every single life is sacred. And if you start looking for it, you can see this throughout all of Scripture, and you can see that life is more valuable than everything else. Love one another as I have loved you. Love your neighbors as yourselves. The value of a life. Now, because this… I want to I try to cruise through these practical tips. Those are the big ideas. But how do we practically do this? How do we live out this agreement in our day-to-day life? First, careful the things you say. Children will listen. Does anyone know what that's from? Into the woods. Good, good job. Bingo, come up and get it. Good job, Gabe. You're welcome. So a couple of weeks ago, my wife found our two youngest kids arguing about vaccines. They're homesick tonight, along with Hannah, so I can talk about them freely without worrying about embarrassing them. But they were both reiterating talking points they had heard from other adults. Now, early on, I may have talked about vaccines in front of them. I don't remember doing it uh, a lot, and I don't remember having done it in a long time when they were talking about it. But somewhere, each of them both picked up a different point of view on COVID vaccines. One was supportive of it, and the other was worried it would kill them. And it was honestly quite alarming, because I don't remember having these conversations with my children about the vaccines. We're not, we're not uh, filling our kids' head with propaganda from all this stuff that's going on, at least trying not to. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I'm having a hard time. I have a hard time even at this moment. I wrote this months ago, but even still to this, to this day, I have, a, I have a hard time remembering a conversation that didn't eventually start talking about vaccines and masks. And it's honestly annoying. I'm so sick of having conversations about vaccines and masks, mainly because I'm a pastor and I obviously have a lot of words to say, so I want to talk about other things other than vaccines and mask mandates and all that stuff. Our conversations are being heard by all the ears. The conversations we have in this room, the conversations we have online, the conversations we have in the car, the conversations we're having at work or at school or all of these places, these conversations are being heard by all the ears, even the young ones. This phrase comes from Into the Woods, careful the things you say, children will listen. There are some really great lyrics in that song. How do you say to your child in the night, Nothing's all black, but then nothing's all white. How do you say it will all be right when you know that it might not be true? Later in the song, what do you leave to your child when you're dead? Only whatever you put in its head. Things that your mother and father had said, which were left to them too. Careful what you say, children will listen. Careful you do it too, children will see and learn. One of the things I think we need to do is be careful about what we're speaking. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up Jesus said, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree was recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And almost an inf- uh, an, a mention of the ladder of inference there. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. These things we're saying about fellow people made in the image of God is coming from our hearts. Psalm 141, verse 3, the psalmist says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. And then all the Proverbs that talk about this. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Gracious words are like a honeycomb. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Some of us just need to stop flapping our gums all the time. Jesus said, On the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Paul said, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And even back in Exodus, 
part of the law was you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. We're going to give an account for the words that we've spoken, including all the words that we spoke in 2020 and 2021. As Christians, we're not supposed to have anything to do with slander, but how much time has been spent in Christian circles slandering either President Biden or President Trump? And what about all that fake news that we've shared on social media and regurgitated in our peer groups so that we could get that precious hit of dopamine and feel good about ourselves? Have we not, as Exodus said, joined hands with the wicked men to become malicious witnesses for misinformation campaigns and fights to control the narrative? We're going to talk more about that next week. Bingo. Bingo. Good, it was getting heavy in here. Come on up. Good job. So we need to start watching our tongues. And this last proverb on that point, for lack of wood, the fire goes out. When there is no whisper, quarreling ceases. You know, if we stop putting wood on the fires of all these arguments, they'll go out. When we stop whispering and quarreling about them, they'll just cease to exist. Which leads me right into my second point. We need to get bad at speaking quickly. This is maybe one of the few times I'm going to tell us, get bad at something. Like most of the time we're trying to become better at things, but get bad at this. We need to get bad at speaking too quickly. James says, let every person be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Blackout. Blackout. All right. You can come up here and choose... Two of these Play-Dohs. Whichever ones you want. There's a purple one. Good job. Way to go. Bravo. We need to get bad at speaking too quickly. Proverbs 18.13 says, if anyone gives an answer before he hears, if anyone gives an answer before he listens, it is his folly and shame. One of Jesus' taglines was, whoever has an ear to hear, let him listen. Proverbs 18, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. Even our faith our ability to believe in God and receive salvation, faith, as Paul says, comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. None of us in this room walked or talked our way into salvation. We listened and received what God said to us through Jesus. In fact, God Himself listens to us. We know that He hears us in whatever we ask, 1 John 5.15. And listening was a core requirement for any faithful prophet in Jeremiah chapter 1. 
We've become really good at spouting off things without even thinking about what we're saying. But we need to get really good at not talking and listening. Third, we need to stop setting traps. Remember the traps that the Herodians were setting for Jesus, the Pharisees? They weren't actually interested in hearing what Jesus had to say about paying taxes. They just wanted to catch Jesus saying something wrong. We need to ask ourselves, what is our motive in the questions we're asking others different than ourselves? Why are we asking questions? Are we trying to trap someone? Fourth and last, empathy. I'll be honest, I'm not great at empathy. I'm working to develop more empathy in my life. If you know how to be more empathetic, feel free to tell, tell me how to do it. My wife will be glad you did. But in case you're dead inside like I am, empathy means being able to respond to someone else's emotions, understand someone's feelings, and be able to understand someone's response in a situation. It means being able to understand and even feel someone else's experience. Biblically, it would correspond with the idea of compassion. And in Luke chapter 7, we get a picture of what compassion is according to Jesus. There's this man who has died, and he's being carried through town in the funeral possession, and he's the only son of a widow. So now this woman has become a widow because her son has died. And when Jesus sees this woman, his heart went out to her. That phrase, his heart went out to her, is literally translated, he was moved to his bowels. He was moved to the deepest part of who he was. Jesus physically felt in the deepest part of himself a pain that this man's death had caused this widow. And that moved him to act. Look at the contrast between the Herodians trying to trap Jesus and Jesus' ministry of compassion and the effect it had. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I have to confess, I used to be a lot more like these religious leaders when I engaged in these hot-button topics. Come and get it. Got two left. When it came to these issues, I wanted to argue to win. I wanted to be, become good at arguing so that I could defeat someone else's argument, hoping that I could convince them that they were wrong and I was right. But eventually, God brought people into my life who thought differently than I did on many issues, and things started to change. Because when the relationship becomes more important than winning the argument, your approach to information starts to change. And we need to be people who are more dedicated to relationships with one another and treating people with the dignity and respect that comes from being made in God's image 
than we are concerned with winning arguments. From what I've learned over the years, people don't usually believe something just because someone said so. These beliefs that we have in our society right now, they don't tend to be just grasped as, as, as facts that have been spoken from someone's mouth. We hold these beliefs, as we learned from the ladder of inference, because of something deep within us. There's something that has happened in our lives at some point along the way that has caused us to think the way we do about these issues. And if we want to move past fighting about the issues, we actually have to build relationships with people who think differently than we do and start digging through the layers of one another's identities and beliefs and assumptions to really get to the heart of why we think the way that we do. But we don't do this so that we can try to convince someone that they're wrong or to try to change their mind. We do it out of love, unconditional love, love without conditions. Can we love someone unconditionally? Can we love someone who disagrees with us or thinks differently than we do? You never know. They might end up changing your mind. So let's be more careful of what we say. Let's get bad at speaking quickly. Let's stop setting traps. Let's learn to be empathetic. Let's treat people as though they had a father who was really, really important because they do. Here's our, our conclusion to this first agreement. As a human being made in God's image, I will treat all people with dignity and respect. I will treat every human, whether in my presence or far away, with dignity and respect. I will do this because it is God's image in all of us. When I mistreat someone, I am dishonoring God himself. When I honor another human who has received God's gift of life, I am honoring God. Regardless of how vastly different our beliefs may be, I will honor the humanity in each individual, even if those beliefs lead them to act in ways contrary to my beliefs. That is the first agreement. Any questions? Everyone's tired because I just talked for a really long time. If you have questions, yes. Yeah, I can't remember where this comes. I think it's next week. But when you're, if, when we put two people head to head in an argument, there's some research about this. And if we choose, if we force, like if we just some kind of inane thing, like reasons why bananas are better than broccoli, and I forced you to come up here and take a side, and I took the other side. You may not care about one or the other. But once we started arguing why our side was the right side, we would become more entrenched in our point of view and less likely to be open to the other person's point of view. 
So the more we find ourselves arguing over who's right and wrong, the more entrenched we get in our own way of thinking and fighting for what we think is right and less likely to actually come to the middle and think about and have a conversation. So I would, I would try to focus on the relationship and get away from the arguments as much as possible. Good question. Jonah, did you have a question? You had your hand up. Okay. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that everyone in this room this evening has been stamped with the image of God. That is vastly different as we may be in appearance tonight. We know that we all have a very similar identity that in so many ways we represent you, we look like you, we bear your image and likeness. I pray, Father, that you help us tonight to not only be image bearers and to be people who honor one another and, and the image of God in one another, treating one another with dignity and respect, but I pray, Father, that you would also help us to become ambassadors of dignity that you would help us to look for opportunities to encourage others who are being undignified in their treatment of other human beings and to have discussions and conversations through relationship to encourage the, the, the dignified treatment of all people on the face of the planet. And I pray, Father, that you would use us to, to be agents of this higher calling, this, this rule that is above all other rules, many other rules, to start to bring unity into many broken areas, that you may give us this a deep calling for this ministry of reconciliation that you put on our hearts to start bringing people back to peace with God who are at war with God and to stop focusing all of our efforts and, and attention on why we're fighting one another when our real war is deeper than that. And I pray, Father, that you'd use us through love, through kindness and compassion to be able to bring people into your kingdom, into the, into the king in whose image they were made, the kingdom of the king who made them in his image, and that they might start to experience the only true reality that exists in the entire universe. In Jesus' name, amen.